Good morning. Last time we were together, we saw Jesus' healing of the paralyzed man, a man who had been hopeless, in a hopeless condition for almost 40 years, paralyzed for almost 40 years. And what Jesus, what we saw last time, is that Jesus, like the master chess player, was moving the pieces on the chessboard controlling events. Please never, never, never think of Jesus as some sort of helpless, hapless person. Jesus is always in complete control. That way in eternity past. This way in John chapter 5. That way now. And that way as to come. Jesus is in complete control because he heals this man who's been paralyzed for almost 40 years at the pool of Bethesda. He just says, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. And the man does it. And Jesus chose to do it not on any day, but on the Sabbath of all days. Right? We studied that the Sabbath is, was designed by God as a day of rest. A day of rest from your occupation, from earning a living from your employment. But sadly, the religious leaders took the blessing of God, the Sabbath, and transformed it not into a blessing, but into a burden, an ugly burden. I mean, it's true that, that God was so serious about the Sabbath that it was actually capital punishment if you worked on the Sabbath. But it was designed as a guaranteed day of rest so that you would lay down your shovel and lay down your tools and rest and worship that day. You were guaranteed it. Your boss couldn't make you work. You weren't to work. It was a day where you set aside your employment. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the other members of the Sanhedrin, who were the religious group who controlled the land of Israel at that time, they transformed it into a burden and so what they did is they came up with 39 interpretations of what work is 39 a list of 39 of you won't do this and you won't do this and you won't do and you won't do that and you won't do, and you want you won't do all these things on the list of 39 and so when Jesus had the audacity to heal a man who had been in hopelessness paralyzed for almost 40 years to heal him on the sabbath scandal scandal before the Pharisees, because the Pharisees had their tradition. Right? They, could care, they couldn't care less about the joy that this man walks, even though he's been crawling along on his hands for f- almost 40 years, dragging his legs and his feet. Now he walks like the rest of us. They don't care about that. They care about their tools, their tools of power. Right? That's what their traditions were. The traditions uh, that they had instituted in addition to the law that they had imposed on the people, those were their tools of power. And Jesus comes along and takes one of their tools and blows it off. Jesus ignores the tradition. And he selects Saturday. Remember, that's the Sabbath. He selects Saturday to heal this man because he's in total control. And he's drawing out the Pharisees. He's drawing out the religious leaders to expose them as the hypocrites that they were. To expose them as cruel and disinterested in the people. 
that they're supposed to be leading to God. And instead, they're interested in their power and in their pride. And so that's why they lorded their authority over the people through their traditions that they guarded so carefully, which was their tools of power. And so the reaction from the religious leaders is they hate him. In verse 17, we saw last time that they persecuted him. Excuse me, in verse 16, it says they were persecuting the, the Jews. When, when, Jesus, when John uses the term Jews here, he's not talking about the entire population of Israel. He's talking about the religious leaders. It says in verse 16 that they were persecuting Jesus because he was healing on the Sabbath. And then in verse 17, Jesus comes along and gives a defense. Right? They're accusing him of a capital offense, violating the Sabbath, a capital crime. And he gives a defense. He doesn't give the defense that you would expect. He doesn't give the defense that the lawyer would whisper in the ear and say, give him, give him the defense, the easy one. Give him the easy defense. That's what the lawyer would say. Give him the one that's obvious. Right? When a lawyer makes an argument to the jury or to the judge, he gives the most persuasive, the most obvious of all the arguments. So if there was a lawyer whispering into Jesus' ears, he would say, in, the, in the Jesus' ear, he would say, tell them that they're just wrong about how they're understanding the Sabbath. Explain to them that the Sabbath doesn't prohibit someone from healing. No, no, no. The Sabbath prohibits someone from their, their employment, from earning a living, but not healing someone. Healing someone is, is wonderful. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, Jesus doesn't make the easy argument. Jesus doesn't make the obvious argument. He makes the unexpected argument. Because Jesus, of course, is always full of surprises. It's not that life is full of surprises. It's that God is full of surprises. And Jesus evidences that. So what Jesus says, instead of saying, hey guys, I, I think you're misunderstanding the Sabbath, he says, the reason why I didn't violate the Sabbath is because I'm God. Let me say that again. The reason why I didn't violate the Sabbath is because I'm God. Talk about scandalous. Capital offense number two. Right? Capital crime number two. Blasphemy. So they think. Jesus' exact words when he says that I'm God are the words that we saw in verse 17. By the way, this is just review for our passage, starting with verse 18. But his exact words, claiming to be God, in verse 17 went like this, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. The reason that's a claim to deity is because in ancient times, someone's identity was often described as son of someone. Or son of something. Alright? So when David, when King David in Psalm 8.4 says son of man, man lowercase m, not the son of man, capital M, as you would see in, in, in the prophecy in Daniel. When David says in Psalm 8.4 son of man, he's referring to a human. He's referring to human beings. When the apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, son of destruction or son of perdition. He's referring to the Antichrist who is so identified with destruction that he's called the son of destruction, the son of perdition. Jesus says, my father. Jesus calls God his father. He doesn't say our father. 
That wouldn't be, have been controversial at all. Everybody would say, yeah, yeah, we use that term, our father. He doesn't say our father. He says my father. What Jesus is doing is he is saying, I am so closely related to the father, to God, that he is my father. He's saying, I'm of the same essence. I'm of the same order as God. And the Jews, the religious leaders who are leading Israel, understand exactly what he's claiming. They understand his claim perfectly. Look at verse 18 of John chapter 5. It reads like this. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling, himself, calling, his, <clears throat> calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Greek word for equal here is isos, which means to be equivalent to, or to be equal to. Paul uses the same word in Philippians 2 when he says, Have this attitude, the attitude there is humility, in yourselves, which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard isos with God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. The religious leaders understand perfectly that Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming equality with God. They don't believe him. And that's why they cry blasphemy. That's why they want to kill him. Blasphemy is a capital offense under the Mosaic law. If they had believed his claim to be God, they would have fallen down and worshipped before him. But since they don't believe his claim, they say blasphemy. And they manufacture their second count, the second criminal count against him. Blasphemy. The reason I say they manufacture it is because it's not true. Count number one is false, and count number two is false. Count number one, you violated the Sabbath. That's not true, because the Sabbath doesn't, pro doesn't prohibit healing on the Sabbath. It prohibits you from picking up the shovel and start to, to dig. It prohibits you from going out to the, to the grape vineyard and clipping the grapes so you can go squish them and turn them into wine. It prohibits you from your employment, but not from healing. So count number one is false. Count number two capital count number two, blasphemy, is also false because he is, in fact, God in the flesh. They want to kill him, really, because he's a threat. He's a threat to their religious power. Actually, they've been wanting to kill him before this. They've been wanting to kill him for a while. You see that phrase there in verse 18. They were seeking all the more to kill him. This is nothing new. He's a threat to their political and religious power. They don't care about his good works. They don't care about the healing that he does. They don't care about the miracles that he does. Priority number one is to preserve our power. Priority number one is to eliminate him. Get him out. Finish him. Neutralize him. So in the face of this murderous disbelief, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, it's time to get out of Dodge. It's time to split. Right? No. Jesus says, let me explain to you why I'm equal with God. 
Let me make crystal clear to you that I am God. In fact, he's going to repeat his claim to deity seven times. He did it once last time we were together. He's going to do it six more times today because he loves them. He loves the murderous crowd who is before him who hunger for his death. He loves them and he wants them to be saved by trusting in him as their means of eternal life. He has moved events to set the stage for him to display his deity to those who hate him, to those who long to kill him because he loves them and his life is less important to him than is their eternal destiny. Let me say that again. His life is less important to him, less valuable to him than their eternal destiny. I'm not saying he doesn't care about his life. Of course he does. He's alive. He's a human. Fully God, fully man. It's just their eternal destiny is more valuable, is a higher priority to Kim than the risk that they will kill him. Actually, he knows they're not going to kill him then because he's in control of all these events. They will kill him ultimately, but that's because he will allow them to, because he will obey the Father and go to the cross. What Jesus is now going to do is reveal what it means to be equal with God over and over he will claim deity. Remember, each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each have their, a different emphasis. They ha- each have a different focus. Matthew has the emphasis of the kingship of Jesus. Mark has the emphasis of the servanthood of Jesus. Luke has the emphasis of the humanity of Jesus. And John has the emphasis of the deity of Jesus. That's why he begins the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we're seeing here John unfold this multi-layered, exponential claim of deity by Jesus. Jesus is about to give them a lesson in Christology, who he is and what he does. And he's also going to give them a lesson in Trinitarianism. Now the focus really here is going to be in John chapter 5, in the Trinity, between the first member and the second member, member of the Trinity, between God the Father and God the Son. You have to look elsewhere in the Gospel of John to find the teachings that Jesus will give about the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. The focus here from a Trinitarian perspective is between the Father and the Son. So let's get to it. Verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, which is to say, listen up. That's what truly, truly means. Or the old King James, verily, verily, something big is about to be said by me. So open up your ears is what truly, truly means. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. There are two divine doctrines that Jesus is revealing here. Doctrine number one, there is absolute unity between the Father and the Son. God the Son never acts independent of God the Father. That's why you see this phrase, the Son can do nothing of Himself. The Son 
always has and always will act consistent with the Father's will. What Jesus is saying is, if I'm guilty of violating the Sabbath, so's the Father. If I'm guilty of violating the Sabbath, so is God. Unthinkable, right? God invented the Sabbath. God can't sin. Jesus here, right up front, is making a claim to deity, another claim to deity. This is his second claim so far to being God. The union between the Father and the Son is so absolute that what the Son does, the Father does. Seeing the Son is the same as seeing the Father. Seeing the Son's works is the same as seeing the Father's works. Seeing the Son's signs, His wonders, is the same as seeing the Father's wonders. Hearing the, Father, hearing the Son's words is the same as hearing the Father's words. This is why Jesus chews out Philip. Right? On the night before Jesus is to be crucified, he has this final time with his disciples. They're disciples, and soon they will be apostles. Right? Disciple means student. Apostle means sent one. They won't be apostles until Jesus is resurrected and ascends, and then he sends them out. On the night before he's to be crucified, he's there with his disciples and he chews out Philip because Philip, after all these years of being with the Lord, of seeing his works, of seeing his wonders, he doesn't get the unity, the perfect, absolute, complete unity between Jesus and the Father. And so we read in John 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? You know that had a sting. Have I been so long with you, and you have not yet come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father in abiding in me does his works. Notice the words and the works. Jesus is saying, my words, my works are the Father's words and the Father's works. Jesus never acts independent of the Father because there is complete unity between the two. The second divine doctrine that Jesus is revealing here in verse 19 is that God the Son always, 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 submits to God the Father. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. You see that statement here in verse 19, meaning the Son submits to the Father's will. There's an authority structure in the Godhead. Right? We're trained by our culture to cringe at the word authority. You're not the boss of me. You ain't the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. Right? That's what our culture sells us. God is into authority. He's all over authority. In fact, there's even authority in the Godhead, among the Trinity. Now, each member of the Trinity is fully God, having all the divine attributes and prerogatives and the divine right, rights. Sovereignty, omniscience, omnipotence, love, immutability, eternality, all the characteristics each member of the Trinity possesses. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But there is authority of function. Of function. 
And so what we see here is the, the reality that the Scripture teaches us that there is the eternal subordination, the eternal submission that God the Son does to His equal, who is God the Father, even though God the Son is co-equal with the Father, having the same divine privileges and the same prerogatives. The Father sends the Son to humble Himself and come as a human, lower than angels, and the Son obeys. The Son obeys. The Father commands the Son to communicate the Father's words to a wicked world, and the Son obeys. The Father directs the Son to do the works and the miracles of the Father, and the Son obeys. The Father sent the Son to die for the sins of the world, and the Son obeys. Remember what what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane? 30 minutes, an hour maybe before they're going to come with the clubs and the torches to arrest him. He says, let this cup pass from me. He prays to the Father, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do it, in other words. I don't want to pay for your sins and your sins and my sins. I don't want to do it. Let this cup pass from me. But how does he finish the prayer? Praise God, he finishes it, but not my will, but thy will be done, because he submits to the Father. The Father directs him to die for the sins of the world and he obeys. And the Father, make no mistake, delegates to the Son to judge the living and the dead. And he will do that. He will obey. In humility, the Son submits to his equal, which is actually an image. It's a picture of the wife's role with the husband. Right? The Scripture teaches the wife to submit to her equal. That doesn't mean that the husband is superior to the wife. He's not. But it means that God has an authority structure, a leadership structure, even in the Godhead, where the son submits to his equal. God the son submits to his equal, God the father. Not because God the father is superior. No, he's equal. But because there's an authority structure, an authority of function, not of essence. The son is not inferior to the father. But you have the same sort of picture with a wife and a husband. I'm not saying that, that, that the father is married to the son or any sort of blasphemy like that. I'm saying you have the same picture, the same pattern in the human realm with the marriage where there is designed by God to be perfect intimacy, intimacy with souls, intimacy of, of the two bodies united, perfect intimacy, and yet there is an authority structure in a marriage, and the wife submits to her equal. In the Godhead, God the Father, excuse me, God the Son has the function of submitting to his equal, God the Father. What's happening here is Jesus is explaining the evidence of his equality with God. Look at verse 20. The first half of verse 20 reads like this. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Jesus is saying, I'm equal with God. What we're going to see as these next three verses unfold is each verse begins with the word for. You see that? Verse 20, verse 21, and verse 22. These are gar clauses in the Greek. 
It's the Greek word gar, which usually, very often, is translated for. But here it has the, the sense of a causal indicator. In other words, it's like a because. It's functioning like a because. And so at the beginning of verse 20, what Jesus is saying is, I'm equal with God because, or for, the Father loves me and shows me all things that he himself is doing. This reminds us of John 3.35, where we read, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You see, the Father entrusts the Son with everything that the Father's doing. The Father entrusts the Son with the Father's will, with the Father's words, with the Father's works. The Father discloses everything to the Son. There's absolute intimacy. You don't have God the Father saying, I'm not going to share that with you, God the Son, and and God the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, I'm not going to share that with you, God the Son. Even hearing those words out of my mouth, it sounds kind of absurd. Right? Because there's perfect unity. Obviously, each member of the Trinity is omniscient, so even that idea is absurd. What Jesus is communicating is there's perfect unity, perfect intimacy, full disclosure. We don't have three separate gods. You're not polytheistic as a Christian, which is what sometimes Judaism claims us as, or, excuse me, sometimes Islam claims us as as being polytheistic. We don't worship three separate gods. We worship one God, three separate persons, one God. But we say that the three separate persons in the Godhead are one God because there is perfect, absolute unity. And that unity, Jesus explains here, involves full disclosure. By claiming full disclosure from God, Jesus is again claiming deity. Because guess what? God doesn't give you full disclosure. Raise your hand if God has disclosed everything about his will, everything about his works, everything about his words to you. I hope nobody raised their hand. God doesn't give you full disclosure because you're not God. Simple. But the Father gives full disclosure to the Son because there is perfect, absolute intimacy and unity. And so the Son, again, is claiming deity. The reason the Father gives full disclosure to the Son is because the Father loves the Son. That's what Jesus says here, right? You see that at the beginning of verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. We need to be careful to distinguish between the John 5.20 love of God and the John 3.16 love of God. Right? We've seen the love of God before. Remember Jesus says in John 3.16, for God, so loves, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is different. That John 3.16 love is different than John 5.20 love. Because John 3.16 love is God loving us despite us. He loves you despite who you are. He loves me despite who I am. He loves me and you despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, despite our unrighteousness, despite our unholiness. That's John 3.16. But John 5.20 is different. That's a different love. Because John 5.20 is the Father loving the Son 
Not despite who the Son is, but because of who the Son is. Perfect, intimate love since eternity past into eternity future. Forever. Because the Son is perfect holiness and righteousness and justice just like the Father. So the Father sees perfect holiness and righteousness and love in the Son because that's who the Son is, that's who the Father is, that's who the Holy Spirit is. And so there is perfect love from the Father to the Son because of who the Son is, not despite who the Son is. For us, it's despite who we are because we're sinners by nature. Rebels, not in a cool way, not a, hey, rebel without a cause, dude. Not that kind of rebel. For God, the rebel is his enemy. And that's who we are, yet God loves us despite who we are. It's very important to distinguish those two different types of love from God. One love, the John 3.16 love, is based on the virtue, on the, if I could use the word, which is so overused, awesomeness of who God is, that he would love the unrighteous. But John 5.20 love is based on the virtue of the object of his love, the Son, who has the same righteousness and holiness and perfection as the Father. You see the distinction between those two different types of love. It's an important distinction. What we're seeing here is Jesus in the same first half of the verse, making two claims to deity. Do you see it? Two claims to deity in the first half of verse 20. Claim number one, full disclosure from God. Jesus says, God discloses everything to me. Not true for anyone else. Claim number one to deity. Claim number two to deity is that God loves me because I'm holy. And righteous. A different sort of love than a John 3.16 love. God loves the Son because the Son is God Himself as well like the Father. Jesus continues to claim deity before a religious, before a crowd of religious leaders who long to kill Him, to eliminate Him. He continues His compound, compounding claims of deity. Because he loves them, knowing full well that many of them would like to kill him as he stands before them. Keep reading in verse 20. And the Father will show him greater works than these, will show the Son greater works than these, so that you will marvel. You see, the Father directed the Son to show, for the Son to show the Son's deity in healing the paralytic. Because healing a man who's been paralyzed for almost 40 years like that, get up, get up, and he just walks, shows that God, the Son, shows that Jesus has control over time, as we saw last time. Because tendons and muscles and ligaments, they don't heal instantaneously. No, you've got to go to physical therapy. You've got to stretch. You've got to go to the doctor. You've got to have all this sort of period to rejuvenate muscles and tendons and ligaments that have atrophied decades earlier. But Jesus, with the Word, just says it. Get up. And He's healed instantaneously because there God the Father directed God the Son 
to display the Son's deity in healing the paralytic. Jesus says, as impressive as that was, that's nothing compared to what's coming. Because you will marvel at what the Father will direct me to do. The works that are coming through Jesus. Because Jesus, the Son, will show His authority by making the dead live never to die again. Yes, 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 yes. Healing the paralytic made those tendons and muscles and ligaments that were dead, made them alive. But Jesus is going to say and is going to explain that I'm going to make the dead live forever. Yes, I'm going to reconstitute bodies. See, when we think of resurrection, we think of what we can see and touch and feel. We think of our spine and our fingers and our ears and our face. And that's true. All that's going to get remade. So that when we step into the celestial kingdom and we breathe that celestial air for the first time, we have a body that can enjoy it forever. That's what we think about. But there's more to the resurrection than just that. We have a body of no longer corruption, but a body of glory. That's very important. That's a very important part of the resurrection. But that's not all of it. Because in the resurrection, when Jesus makes the dead live, He makes the flesh that is dead. One minute we're dead, and at the resurrection He will reconstitute our bodies, fit for eternity in the eternal kingdom, yes. But He's also going to change your soul. Your spirit. Because you're not even going to be able to think of sin in the eternal kingdom. Right? Because today we sin by thought, by word, and by deed. You won't even be able to think of sin. To speak of sin. Because in the eternal kingdom, sin is forever vanquished. Sin is forever eradicated. Just read the end of Revelation 22. This is the work that Jesus will ultimately do that we will marvel at, that Jesus is going to talk about in a minute. And the other work that Jesus, that I said that we will ultimately do, that Jesus will ultimately do, the other work that Jesus will do, that we will marvel at, is a work that we feel uncomfortable about, is a work that we don't like to talk about at parties, is that He will sit on His throne of judgment and He will judge the living and the dead. And I assure you, you will marvel at that. We all will. Jesus says that the Father will have Jesus display the works of His deity. And we will marvel. So keep reading. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Notice the parallelism here. Jesus is saying, I am equal with God, gar, in the, in the Greek, because, or for. I'm equal with God because, in the same way that the Father raises the dead and gives them life, I give life to whom I wish. In other words, I raise from the dead whom I wish. This is another claim to deity. Jesus is claiming deity again, but not because of what you think. He's not claiming deity here because he makes the dead live. 
He's not claiming deity because he raises the dead. It's not why he's claiming deity. It's not how he's claiming deity. That happened in the Old Testament, right? Elijah raised from the dead the son of the widow in 1 Kings 17. Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman from the dead in 2 Kings 4. That's not Jesus' claim to deity, that he can raise people from the dead. That, was happened in the old, that happened in the Old Testament. He can raise people from the dead, but that's not what he's claiming as his basis for his assertion of deity here. See the basis? Look at the verse. Don't read it quickly. Read it slowly. It's there at the end of verse 21. I give life to whom... I wish. That's the key. To whom I wish. It's the Greek word thelo, which means to wish, to want, to will. Jesus is saying, I give life to whom I want. I give life to whom I wish. I give life to whom I will. Jesus is is claiming the exclusive privileges of God here. Because God alone chooses who will live. God alone chooses who will receive life and who will be raised from the dead. This is different than Elijah and Elisha who were human agents who were fulfilling God's will to raise so-and-so or raise so-and-so from the dead. Jesus is saying, I don't serve as an agent of God like Elijah or Elisha. I serve as the divine agent of God. I have my own divine initiative, my own divine will, my own divine wants, my own divine wishes. Which, of course, I exercise all of that divine prerogative in submission to the Father, as Jesus earlier taught in these verses. And the Father's will, the Father's wish, the Father's want, which the Son executes, even though the Son has His own divine initiative, His own divine will. The Father's will as to who will be saved, who will receive life, is those who exercise faith in the Son, trusting in the Son. It's not just some arbitrary wish or some arbitrary will of God as to who will be saved. The will of God, God the Father, and God the Son submits His will to the Father's will, is that the Son will give life to everyone who has, son, who has faith in the Son. The life that Jesus is talking about in verse 21 is eternal life, eternally transforming the body and the spirit, never to die again. The people that Elijah and Elisha raised from the dead died. I'm sure they were pumped about being raised from the dead, but then they had to think again, man, i got to go through that again. I'm going to have to die again. Somebody's not going to walk around here and say, oh yeah, Elisha or Elijah raised me from the dead thousands of years ago. They died. Jesus is talking about a different sort of raising from the dead. A raising from the dead never to die again. That's what's so special about Jesus. He's claiming deity again as he has multiple times so far. Keep reading verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is saying, I'm equal with God. 
gar or for or because. I'm equal with God because I do what is the exclusive province of God. Judgment. You say, well, no, 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 no. Jesus is this soft and squishy kind of shampoo hair model kind of guy who's, you know, sweet and cuddly. You just want to get all close to him. It's true, Jesus came meek and humble. That is true. But make no mistake. Jesus is God in the flesh. And when he returns, it will not be on the colt of a donkey. It will be on a war horse, as we studied this morning at the 9.30. On a battle horse to engage in warfare against his enemies. Jesus is meek and mild, to be sure. But he is also the one who will sit on the throne of judgment and will judge the living and the dead. The one who we will marvel at. And here, Jesus claims deity because he claims that which is the exclusive province of God, which is the judge. You see, the scripture uses the title judge of the world only for God, for no one else. You see that in Genesis 18.25 and in Psalm 94.2. That is a title used exclusively for God. And Jesus comes along here and says, that's my title. Not even the Father uses the title. That's my title. Because the Father has given me all judgment. A claim, as before, to deity. There was parallelism in verse 21. Right? In verse 21, that you have the parallelism of both the Father and the Son give life to the dead. No parallelism in verse 22. Jesus' judgment is all mine. Not the Father's. Because the Father has given it to me. As I say, a claim that is undeniable. A claim of deity. This is the final reckoning. The final judgment. It will come from and through and by Jesus alone. This is why Jesus issues the Great Commission. Remember the Great Commission? Go! Go and teach the world about me. Go! Why? Because I will judge. Because I have absolute authority. Look at the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That includes the authority to judge. Therefore, or go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Father has entrusted the Son with the final judgment to execute the final judgment for all of eternity. This is not surprising. The Father knows that the Son always acts consistent with the Father's will. And the Father knows that the Son is eternally righteous, so His judgments are perfectly and eternally fair. The Father knows that there is perfect unity between the Father and the Son. Perfect unity between God the Father and God the Son perfect holiness and righteousness that God the Son has, and so His judgments will be perfect. The Father knows all of those things. All that's true 
But what's fascinating is that that's not why the Father gives all judgment and all authority to the Son. At least that's not what verse 23 spells out. Look at verse 23. Well, let's read 22 and 23 together. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that, in order that, all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. The Father has delegated to the Son all authority, all judgment, so that the Son will have equal honor with the Father. When Jesus exercises all judgment, everyone will honor him. When he sits on the throne, you will not sit, you will stand. When you go down here to the courthouse and the bailiff says, All rise, you stand when the judge comes in. And what does the judge do? He then sits. And you sit when he says, you may be seated. And when the verdict is read to a defendant in a human courthouse, the judge says, stand. And the verdict is read. You will stand before Jesus when he judges you. Now to be clear, if you have accepted Christ the judgment there is not a risk of etern- losing eternal life. You can't lose your eternal life because it's not dependent on you in the first place. It's dependent on Him. So you can't lose your salvation. But you can fritter away, squander away your eternal blessings. You think, eh, blessings, eh, whatever. Don't think that. That's foolish to think that. If I came up and said, won't you take $500 million, you'd say, well, yeah. But Jesus comes up and says, won't you take blessings, untold blessings, rewards for eternity, if you will obey me? He's talking to believers. Eh, whatever. Wrong. Wrong response. Wrong attitude. My point is, we will stand before the judge, and the judge is not God the Holy Spirit. The judge is not God the Father. The judge will be none other than Jesus Christ himself. By honoring Jesus, everyone will honor the Father. Look at how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 2. God highly exalted him, the him there is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word there for glory in the Greek is doxa or doxa. We sing the doxology, the gloriology. Doxa means glory or honor or renown. You see, you can't honor the Father without honoring the Son. And you can't honor the Son without honoring the Father. By giving glory to one, you give glory to other. But make no mistake, you cannot glorify God without glorifying the Son. Those who say, we worship God, and we don't worship Jesus, they're lying. They're deceivers. Because the only way to worship the Father is by worshiping the Son, is through worshiping the Son. And when you worship the Son, when you honor the Son, you honor the Father. Keep reading in verse 23. 
so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And then it goes on. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You see, Jesus is equating his honor with the Father's honor. Another claim to deity. He's claiming the same glory as God. Do you remember Isaiah 42, verse 8? Which reads like this, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. Jesus does no damage to that divine declaration. When he says, I share glory with the Father, and the Father shares glory with me. He does no damage to Isaiah 42.8 because there is such perfect unity, equality between the Father and the Son that the Son's glory is the Father's glory and the Father's glory is the Son's glory. Then we get to our last verse for today. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen up. That's what truly, truly means. Listen up, I say to you. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Jesus again equates himself with the Father. This time by equating belief in his word with belief in the Father. When Jesus says, those who hear my word, he doesn't mean you hear it, bonk, and it goes out the other side. In one ear and out the other ear. That's not, that's not what it means. When he says, those who hear my word, he means you hear it and you act on it. You hear it and you rely on it. You trust in it. He's claiming deity because he's saying, when you trust in my word, you're trusting in the Father's word. My word is the Father's word. He's equating himself with God. This is the seventh time so far that he has claimed that he is God in the flesh. Jesus is saying, if you trust in my word about who I am and what I do, you're trusting in him and the one who sent me, in the Father, and I will give you eternal life. I will not give you the judgment that you so richly deserve. You deserve judgment. So do I. Jesus is talking to a murderous crowd who want to kill him. He's saying, you won't receive the judgment that you deserve. I mean, isn't that what he says? In verse 24, and does not come into judgment. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. You don't come into the judgment that you are otherwise due, that I am otherwise due as a sinner, as a rebel, as a traitor. That's what we are. We're treasonous before the high king of heaven. We deserve judgment. And yet Jesus says, if you will hear my word, which is to say believe it, trust in it, then you won't come into judgment. And you have passed out of death into life, into life eternal. I hope you see the love of Jesus. Don't miss his love. Don't miss the deep love of Jesus as he stands before a crowd who hungers to kill him. He repeats his claim and explains his claim of who he is. He doesn't run and split. He stands there and tells them, this is why I say that I am God. He explains his equality with God. He delivers a message to a crowd, most of whom perceive his message as compounded blasphemy. 
They hunger to kill him, and he explains it over and over, claims deity at least seven times so far. Why? Because he wants none to perish. He wants even the murderous religious leaders to come to faith in him, to pass from death into life, which is to say he loves his enemies, which is what we are. At least that's what what we were before we came to Christ. What do you think you would have done if you were in the crowd? What do you think you would have done? You think when the religious leader kind of whispered into you, into your ear, that's blasphemy. You think you would have said, hey, maybe he's right. What do you think you would have done if you were in the crowd when they were screaming, crucify him? Would you say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not, I, I'm out of here. Would you have done that? I'm not going to get all juiced up with everybody else. Maybe. You don't know. What we know is that God in the flesh, Jesus loves his enemies. Us. You see, don't get too high on your high horse. We're just like those in the crowd. Enemies. And yet he loves us. I love the words of the old English pastor from the 1800s, Samuel Trevor Francis who describes the love of Jesus so beautifully in that old hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth, never, never more. How he watches o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watcheth o'er them from the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing. Tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the love of Jesus. Today's the day. Today's the day. Because you have no guarantee on tomorrow. You say, who's Jesus He's the one who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is Jesus. You see, the Father raised a dead man never to die again to validate the claims of Jesus in John chapter 5 that He is God in the flesh. Because as Jesus were still in a grave decomposing, then we should make fun of Him. Put Him in your expletives like everybody else if he's still in the grave. But if, in fact, he's raised from the dead and he sits with flesh and bones, remade to be sure, but sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, then you must take him seriously. As we close, I love the words of C.S. Lewis. You must take Jesus seriously. A man who comes in and claims 
forgiveness. It's one thing for you to cheat me out of 20 bucks, Lewis says, and for me to say, I forgive you. We will speak of this no more. But it's something altogether different for you to cheat you out of 20 bucks and for me to walk up and say, I forgive you. We will speak of this no more. That's what Jesus does. He's the man who comes in and forgives all sins. But only those who accept His free gift of salvation actually appropriate that gift of forgiveness. The rest remain under His judgment. The decision is yours. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you because you are an awesome God. We praise you. We come to you in reverent awe. We thank you for your son. We thank you that you directed him, that you sent him to come as a man, to humble himself, to die for our sins. We thank you that you sent him to reveal you to us through him. We thank you that we have the revelation of the Trinity, of you and the Son and the Spirit. We thank you for all these things. We ask that you transform us by these things. We ask that you remind us of these things as we wander in a world that is wicked. As we go forth from here, we ask that you implant these things in our soul that we may recall them to mind in the time of crisis when the temptation arises and remind us that we will stand before your son very soon and give an account. We pray all these things in the name of his majesty, the king of the kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.